0: Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. RTA.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one.
1: There's the revolutionary charisma of Michael Collins and the imperial loyalty of Winston Churchill. The roguish charm and latent danger of gangsters like Bonnie Kelly, Danny Perrier, or Ken in In Bruges. Not forgetting the infamous Martin Cahill in The General. And there are roles played for Scorsese. Spielberg, Gibson, Minghella and Jordan. My guest today has, in the relatively short career span of 20 years, performed over 50 roles on screen and at least as many on stage. In the process, he has gained himself an international reputation. Many of these characters themselves are performers, mask wearers, pretenders, but the actor playing them is loved for being real, being truthful and being raw. Ladies and gentlemen, Brendan Gleeson. Thank you very much. I think I first met you, Brendan, back in the late 80s somewhere uh, on the Dublin theatre scene, a place that had a bit of pretension around it sometimes, it's probably safe to say, but you were always Mr. Real. <laughs> Mr. Real person. And well, 20 um, years later, you still seem as if you are.
0: Well, I'd hope to kind of stay half real anyway. <laughs> as you know, I kind of came into full time acting relatively late. But when I went full time, I have to say, to be honest, that uh, I was surprised at how many real people were inhabiting the Dublin theatre scene or the Galway theatre scene or just uh, professional acting generally. I kind of was very encouraged by it. Uh, by how generous people were and how um, idealistic people were. And, you know, people would tell you of an audition where you would be in competition with them without even the thought of being doing the cuter tour thing. Or they'd help you out with something that would mean that may- maybe it might cost them. And I found it um, invigorating, I have to say.
1: The Passion Machine was a particular type of, of realism, a particular type of truth. Why was that the company that you went to?
0: Well, I met Paul at, at, uh, in, in university, and we were in the common drama, I think it was, in UCD. Uh, and I was working with another crowd of people from Fairview at the time. And just Paul is a bundle of energy and extraordinarily kind of constructive um, determination. And um, he just sweeps people with the kind of momentum of, of, of his drive and everything and his vision. And then he formed the patch machine when, when we left and he started, he started writing in English. Uh, and I think it was, it was very quite like Druid or any of the, you know, the, at the time, there was a kind of uh, an integrity to it that was fantastic, but also it was a massive theatricality to the, to the way he worked. Their kind of mission, in a way, was to explore suburbia that had been ignored for a long time and to, you know, we were, we were all kind of getting into teaching and things like that, or had been into teaching. And teaching in Dublin suburban schools, where really you don't, you know, we were all learning, you know, the great dramatic tradition of Ireland, but we weren't, it wasn't particularly relevant to anything, in much the same way as a lot of the Irish language books weren't particularly relevant to anything that in, within those kids' actual lives, as against the truth of the imagination. And on top of that, then there was a huge relevance to, um, <clears throat> you know, people, the situation of people living in suburban cities, which is actually where most people live. And we tried to be entertaining, we didn't try to preach or, you know, all that. We used an awful lot of bad language because um, it just seemed appropriate when we were young. And and anyway, it kind of feels good, let's be honest. And uh, (laughs) and maybe a little bit too much of it at times. But fundamentally it was about trying to connect with the actuality of people's lives. And very deliberately John Sutton and and Paul went out into dole offices, went out into places where theatre was not part of the culture and they brought people in very deliberately. They papered the place so that people would tell their friends, and it was just very invigorating. It felt kind of slightly revolutionary in a, in a theatrical way.
1: Your mother had the reel-to-reel thing going on with the radio when you were growing up.
0: Yeah. What was that? Yeah, she did. It was the it was the big lump of technology in the in the corner. They yeah, and came well before anything like with televisions and all. It really does feel like as if we lived in caves. But it's uh, when I think back to early sixties. Yeah, I was born team. in fifty five, and so. Um, but my mother's constant thing was reel to reel, and she would basically record from the radio uh, anything that took her fancy. And at that point, do you know there? As you know, there were fantastic dramas on you know all the great classics were being performed on radio and she would record them and play them but also her musical taste was extraordinarily ec- eclectic and that machine really became um, the other universe for her when she was doing the ironing or something hideous and it was her escape and she never she never told us to listen to anything or never it was just there but we had access to it the whole time and uh, it kind of her personality and the the real to real mixed it's kind of really funny, I, I, um, I, I still have it, the actual machine. Uh, she died two years ago, and I was just going through some, some very interesting um, stuff from 1961 that had been recorded with various family, and it's extraordinarily evocative.
1: Did it really get into your imagination at that time? Did The thought that, I wouldn't mind being one of those fellas on the radio now doing that. Was, was that even born in the young Gleeson, the, the under 10-year-old?
0: Uh, well, I had a fantastic... Primary school teacher called Pat Grogan who was a Christian brother, and despite all the kind of um, the problems with with that particular uh, group of men, he to me was like a shining light. He was like really in local parentis, He did feel as if he had the same spirit that my mother had. You know, my mother wrote him a note on a book which I brought in at the end of one year. I remember reading it. You know, just for the few precious moments when you're not surrounded by the children, I can still remember what said. Uh, uh, so. We did all sorts of stuff, um, concerts and shows, and all sorts of great, ambitious kind of little bits of little films in primary school. So that part of me, I felt, yeah, this is, this is, I love all this.
1: And when you were in the classroom, was, was, was Pat Grogan on your shoulder <laughs> guiding hope, you as a teacher? I,
0: I, yes, I hope so. I, I mean, I hope so. I did, he definitely was the feeling that you could make a difference. Uh, he definitely gave me that, that feeling. And uh, horribly, like, um, he ended up committing suicide. Uh, I, I felt as if somebody, it was amazing. I hadn't really had much contact with him over the years, maybe I'd been 18 months before. And uh, I, he suffered a bit from empty nest syndrome, I think. When he moved on from one thing, you know, from one group of kids, he went off and did something else, another group of kids. And, but anyway, I was awful, really, obviously, obviously, awfully sorry. I, I, I wasn't around, I didn't know. But it was like, um, I remember the shock of that was, was terrible. But you would hope to carry his legacy through, yeah. That's, you definitely would. He, he definitely made a difference to me in terms of, you know, I was going to Marino, which is like there were a thousand kids in the school, um, and he was just—I mean, talk about a friendly face—but he, he was a friendly face. But secondary school was completely devoid of all that. It was like, uh, grow up, would you? <laughs> um, you're, not, you're not a kid anymore, and so it seemed in secondary school it drifted away to where I felt it would be for me. As a, I never thought of it as a profession.
1: You grew up when you went to the health board first and then you went to teaching.
0: That was ghastly, yeah. I, um,
1: <laughs>
0: well, I, I had a couple of rows with my folks and went off busking down to Kerry for ages after the leaving and had to bust up happened? and rows. Ah, 17 or something like that. I started going out with a girl when I was 15. I fell in love when I was about 15 or 16 and I used to be shooting off down to Tipperary and um, the way young lovers do and uh, visiting her down there and getting into trouble and bashing off school and Getting into rows and stuff like that, not just rows at home. And uh, so it was all that really exciting stuff. And, uh, <laughs> and that was all great. But then I decided I better sort myself out. I kind of felt I was kind of hurting too many people in too many areas. So I, I decided I should straighten myself out. And I did about six or seven different things. And then I ended up in the health board being a, a clerical officer. And I was more a clerical letter than a clerical officer. <laughs> <laughs> um, it wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> But I did have a great time going down the country and playing music, and uh, we used to go down a different place. I got into traditional music, and I started to go down and listen to all these people playing tunes, and it, that was a world that I loved. So I ended up spending two years in it because, you know, the regular few Bob, was great. It just meant that it freed you up in other areas. I had an independence that I didn't, didn't it was just great. It was that whole thing about getting your first-wage packets on a regular basis and being able to career off, you know, like the weekend hippies. But this was kind of—that's what I did for about two years. But I suddenly found myself—I was dying in this place. It was just too much. I couldn't—I couldn't take the regimentation of it, or there was a lot of things I couldn't take. Um, (laughs) But I decided I needed to get out, you know. So I got out, and I went back to uni. Then so that's
1: how that all started. The Passion Machine came along. Stage career was going fine. The screen—I think Glenn Rowe was in there before we had the big screen break, Michael Collins. Yeah, the Treaty. Well, yeah, it was a television film where
0: I played Michael Collins. Uh, it was almost docudrama because it was taken word for word. Everything, everything in it, every, every piece of dialogue in it was straight quotation. People were looking at the treaty, and of course nobody had really been taught about the treaty. You know, Irish history kind of finished when we got the Brits out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, you, you know, like kind of nothing what changes. We are not really prepared to talk about what we do to each other, and we're still not doing it. So this was fantastic, because it was, um, they were going to look at the actual treaty, how we were born as, as an entity. you know, And uh, I went in to do an audition for Michael Collins, and I'd only really just turned professional and stuff. Uh, and I kind of lost my temper in the place, because I hadn't been given enough notice. I didn't even know if I was auditioning for Michael Collins or not. So I got really mad. And, uh, and Jonathan Lewis said, oh, yeah, he used to get mad too. <laughs> <laughs> So it wasn't in any way a kind of an actor, and then I thought I, I wasn't that smart or anything like that. It just, it just, I just got annoyed. I got mad because I said they were talking about they were talking in terms of this, that, and the other thing, and I said nobody, nobody doesn't understand the GAA can talk about Michael Collins. Like you have to talk about the GAA, the way fellas horse around each other, the way they communicated, what's expected, what isn't, the kind of nod and wink every so often, but then absolute bravery when people are trying to take your head off, and you know a feeling of no dumbing down but at the same time there's an earthiness about the whole gaa scene at its best now i know there's lots of other aspects to it but at its best and i'd been playing a little bit of football and i kind of i kind of felt i know what this is it's a real take and it's a lack of pretension but there's an intellectual clarity and an intellectual um vitality i'd read um the tim pat coogan collins book about a year before and i kind of felt God, I'd love to have a go with this guy, you know. I'd love to have a go at trying to because like all great figures, you could make 17 films one after the other, and each one would be different. He'd so many different aspects to him. But that's what I kind of felt. I just loved the fact that he'd jump on fellas and kind of be at their ears and and uh, upscuttling them all the time and 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 not letting people settle. And at the same time, his expectations of what people could do and his insistence that people expect more of themselves. All of that, you know, you could kind of see,
1: I can see where this is going. <laughs> Fast forward 20 years, yeah. and the Michael Collins inside you <laughs> has now to play Winston Churchill. Yeah. They, the two of them have a chat to each other inside your they, head.
0: They, they do. Uh, I kind of said to myself, anybody who understands the GAA cannot play Winston Churchill.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, um, yeah, yeah. No, I had a bit of a. The problem with it, because uh, first of all, it was a huge leap in terms of culturally. I said, okay, just even, and also he was like 18 years, 20 years older than me. You know, I had to kind of age up and I had to become an aristocrat with a whole set of values that I actually didn't understand. I mean, that's not, that's not a million miles away from the truth, actually. I didn't know if I could you know, assume that kind of feeling of entitlement uh, that is there in that particular echelon in society. I also didn't know if I liked the man anyway because, you know, initially I basically didn't as a, as a historic figure in terms of that whole period in Irish history, he had threatened us with more or less obliteration and subservience. And uh, so I'm saying, why am I playing a bully? Like, what am I doing with, that, with this? And then, of course, on the other hand, there was the fact that he stood up to the, you know, the greatest savage of the 20th century and that we'd be all... <laughs> Speaking very bad German, if he hadn't, <laughs> if he hadn't done it, and uh, you know hypernor German, can you imagine? <laughs> but like, <clears throat> he really did stand up to utter tyranny, so he is obviously a massive hero. And you're kind of saying, how how um, how do you tackle this? And then, <clears throat> basically, we went off. Thaddeus Sullivan was directing it, and. Uh, he got uh, Ingrid Craig and we went in, and we started reading a few things. We did a camera test, and oddly enough, the actor kind of came out. I just found this is really, really well written, dramatic stuff. It would be stupid and impossible to walk away from it once we did the camera test. Mm. And then there were other things that had to come into play. But yeah, I mean, it, it was a fascinating kind of a journey, really hugely helped by um, Joan Washington, who's was a dialect coach. And we went over down to Ballyvaughan for two weeks. And um, we spent two weeks in Ballyvaughan being Winston Churchill. And, uh, <laughs> How we escaped with our lives, I do not know. <laughs> no, but it was great. I really was miserable for the first week and a half, but she was such a, an extraordinary professional and she was able to just coax and guide. And she said, Do the mimicry thing first, and, which, you, which is usually death. Just do the mimicry thing first. See if you can actually Were you listening it. to tapes or something? Yeah, all to? the stuff, like just all the stuff over and over and over again. And then she said, Right, try and. Try you know, most people who kind of go, and me included, kind of do, going at it, you kind of sort of bring it down there, and you kind of say, okay, let's do do your thing. Then just read it in your own voice, and then let's listen to him. And he says, now just listen to it. His timber is not as low as that. His pitch is not as low as that. It's actually much closer to yours than what you're doing. So what you're doing is you're you're going into somewhere else. And she managed to merge the, you know, the whole John Hart said about accent. For it to work properly, it has to become part of your DNA. That if you're putting on or playing an accent, and if it's something outside of who and what you're, you're inhabiting, it's nonsense. Even if it's tonally correct and you know, syllabically correct and everything, it's it's nothing to do with anything. It has to be in your DNA. It's a fantastic way of putting it.
1: Did he become a character then, as opposed to an historic icon?
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things, like, I mean, even intellectually, I was kind of saying, you can't play a hero. So what do you do? You know. And then I was going through all this kind of, in the end, with which I decided it was real nonsense about all the historical baggage and what his thing to us was and wasn't it. You kind of, and I said, you can't, even if you're playing a hero, you wouldn't play it. And I would say, well, if you were playing a gangster, say he is a gangster. Let's just to say he's a thug and a bully and an imperialist. Okay, what would you do playing a thug and an imperialist? You'd find the humanity in him. That's what you do. That's what you, it, that's, that's the only way you will find any truth about anybody. And so, instead of judging everything about who or what he was, or what he did, or what he just find first of all the person, and try and find out: okay, what was his drive? Why did he feel he had this entitlement to do this, that, or the other thing? And uh, and just look at him as a man. Forget the hero and forget whatever else the villain, and just find out where his humanity is. And actually, again, it comes back to the script. The script really was was woven around the time in France when they left, at the end of the war, where they were waiting for the results of the election, oh, yes, which, he, yeah. which he subsequently lost, and, and he was a nightmare, he was, he, was, he was really impossible to live with, and Clementine his wife said that if he was, she was ever going to leave him, and there were a few times when she really was, but it was then, when he was awaiting his judgement. So it was set as a domestic drama, in an, in an odd way with the Second World War as a kind of a reference point and a backdrop and you'd kind of go back. And it was great because it was about humanity and it was about an old marriage, you know, a marriage that's under pressure all the time and a man's ego uh, trampling all over it, I guess, and his obsessions and his vulnerability all becoming really difficult to, that he was actually going to break loose from what was the sustaining kind of rock of his life.
1: Winning the Emmy for that, what, what does it feel like, you know, the winner of the Emmy is Brendan Gleason. Yeah, it was great. <laughs>
0: yeah, it was actually great. I have to say, you know, it was one of those things, um, you know, it's not a competitive sport. It, it really isn't. It's, it's, it's down to so many different ways. But I was so stretched in that. And I did feel myself... Um, I feel myself very vulnerable in it, in the sense that uh, if this goes wrong, it's going to go catastrophically wrong. It really is. And uh, so I kind of really did, I loved it. I loved the fact that it kind of actually went, it reached out and, and it got there. You know what I mean? That the communication was made and that, you know, it's, I'm not being pole faced about it. It was just such a blast. But I really do know it's not a competitive sport. Like it is apples and oranges. You cannot compare performances of such varying degrees as you get all, in all of these things. But there is f- something fantastic. Like we had been, we went to Golden Globes after that and I didn't win, but I got a nomination, which I was really pleased about. And we'd been, I'd been to the Golden Globes with Colin Farrell the, the year before and he won it. And it was like, there was something fantastically celebratory about people being happy for other people winning, winning prizes. Like it was kind of a, it was an odd thing, but they're at times it can be quite competitive, this business. Um, and you have to kind of be able to kind of hold your own a little bit. But in my experience of those things was that they weren't actually. They were extraordinarily celebratory. So that's how it felt.
1: Are you ever tempted to tread the board six nights a week with a matinee on a Saturday? <laughs> <laughs> I detected a note,
0: little note of bitterness
1: there, Sean. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, I went back about in 2000 and did a, did a Billy Rose play, and I just, it was really brilliant. Like to hear people laughing at something, or to feel the buzz in the room, and all that was really, really great. Uh, I have to say, I, I don't know how I'm getting away with getting to do all these films though, and I kind of feel I just love it. I love it. I don't want to interrupt it, um, unless something really mind-blowing happens that I, I really want to do. There was also the thing where you know, people were talking about doing stuff on Broadway and I just didn't want to be away for six months and uh, you know now the family's kind of you know, f- starting to fly the nest and things like that. That that may change. But I just didn't want to be doing just those large commitments of theatre. But I yeah, I don't know if I'll try something again. At the moment, I just love getting messing with cameras.
1: Um, I'll, I'll throw it open to the floor now for some questions and I see a lady over here with her hand up and a microphone in her hand.
0: Hello, um, my name is Colette. Um, I just wanted to ask you about um, selling a project and the promotional responsibility you might feel and whether you engage with the junket system. <laughs> Why do I feel this is a loaded question? Um, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm OK, there's, you know, the whole thing from the passion machine from the beginning was there's no point in talking to an empty seat. You, know, you go to all this trouble to do something you want people to see it. So therefore, yeah, going, you know, going on publicity things is part of the. It's a hideous part of it, but it's a part of it. Uh, I'm very uncomfortable about either making myself public property in the way that the media feel that they can actually portray it. Uh, I don't feel I'm public property. I feel I have a right to my life in a private capacity. I do my best with my work, not to shortchange anybody, and therefore the publicity that I do is, maybe apart from this particular evening, is about the work, though. It's about, it's not about me, the person and You know, it's about the work, putting it out there. So my attitude to journalism and publicity generally is that I do want people to have access <clears throat> to the work. I do think that there are legitimate questions can be asked about the work. I'm always very interested to talk about my own work and the work of people around me. The publicity machine of celebrity, I find, I just find it anathema. I, I don't like it. I don't like it personally. I find it uncomfortable that you can't go into a place where people are saying, oh, my God, um, because without ever having seen anyone you in, or asking, what's your name again? And it's like, <laughs> there's a nonsense of celebrity that has happened, and particularly you know, the last couple of years, <clears throat> that I find completely dispiriting. I find it unworthy of us, to be quite honest. Um, and it's nonsense and about nothing. So there is a line to be drawn because obviously it sells tickets and it sells things. But I don't feel, I feel um, it's a cheap way to sell a ticket and it's not justified. Hi, my name is Sean. My question is, what advice would you give to someone who wants to get into acting? I don't mean to be trite, but act, you know? Get a couple of your friends, or a couple of your non-friends even, which is the hardest bit. It's hard to do anything like this. But the only advice I can give to you is do it. Just do it. Get your mother's wardrobe, like Paul Mercier or whoever, and haul it onto a, onto a stage. Find a piece of work if you need to find it. There is so much you know, written literature and so many plays and so many bits of things that you can put on. Find out how, you know, get advice, ask people if you can. Uh, if you need to, about maybe to in, in a librarian, for example, just ask her. Is there where would what would I find? Go and find things. Find out people who'd be interested, maybe in directing something, or just do it. Set something up, like you know the Beauley's Cafe kind of philosophy of, of theatre. Put it up. Like we started in the school hall. Now you know it's not. I don't, I don't mean you know to get into this whole thing. We started with nothing. But the point is that like you can actually create absolutely anything on a stage. We were talking about it earlier anything with no props. You do not need money to start off. What you need to do is, first of all, engage with people who are as intensely interested as you, because, because it ain't going to be about anything else except what it is. And then find a space. You can find a space almost anywhere. You can go into the back of a pub anywhere you can do it. People will come and they will engage with you if you take your responsibilities about it. Somebody told me before, like if you go on a stage and you take an hour, you inhabit somebody's head for an hour, massive responsibility. You never, you never mess around with the notion of the audience and corpse and messing around. With it. You have a massive responsibility to your audience to, to keep them in, in as much as you can where they are. So anybody who wants to act, act. And all you have to do in, in, in a situation is try and get a few, Buddies are a few. Somebody's people that you can contact through some, you know, put a note in the shop or something. Start off a drama group, but waiting for a call is kind of you're already starting off on the wrong foot. Get going. That's a, that's that's what you should do.
1: Thanks. Lady <laughs> at the back.
0: Hi, Brendan. How are you? I was just wondering, how did you get the break yourself? I, I'm not sure what the break was exactly. I think. The Collins thing was kind of pretty good for me and um, just on a personal level because it meant that I, I could, I felt I could kind of carry, I loved being the one to carry the film and things like that. that was, it was a TV thing, a two hour thing, the treaty. Um, and that was a real break because I, as I said I just lost my temper in the audition and I got lucky. I just got really lucky. The other thing though was that at the same time, you know, like when I, I first realised I didn't, I wasn't going to have work after you know, my first job in the Abbey and stuff like that, Morrow Higgin's I said, would you think of doing a one-man show he had this Peter Susskind play? And that's what we did. We went up and we set up and we did a one-man show. And, and you don't wait for a break. It's not about a break. It's about living a life. It's not about, you know, people talk a lot about career and, you know, I talk about my career and career and career. It's not career, and Sean McGinley kind of put me straight in this too. It's like, I was wondering why, why do I feel odd when I say that? It's not career. It's a kind of a state of being. It's a vocation or it's a place you're And basically what you're there to do is to do the work. Now, it's fantastic getting to work with people. I won't, I mean, I've said already, I feel so blessed and lucky and everything. But really, I felt blessed and lucky when I was doing the one-man show. You know what I mean? And that people were actually coming in to see it. And as blessed and lucky, I have to say, because if you can, you know, you try to work with good people, it doesn't matter if it's a break or not. When you keep doing the work, eventually something will happen where you'll be given an opportunity and you hope to be ready for it and then it might lead on to something else or it mightn't but the point is that if you're working at what you love and getting better at it and finding ways of doing away with um, you know the flim flam that's around it it's not really about the break in the first place so you know I mean I know that maybe sounds a little bit um, it's okay for you to say that because I'm kinda I'm doing okay <laughs> but like it is honestly about that my release from not doing acting full-time to doing acting was 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 that was the break
1: uh, another question here
0: hi um, my name is geraldine i just wondered um, you, you mentioned a minute ago your big break was taking the leap from acting part-time to acting full-time um, what was it that that gave you the confidence to take that that leap i think i was 34 and i always said i never wanted to reach 35 and say i regret it <laughs> That was one um, the second thing was, I suppose, you know, we, I had kind of uh, been nominated for um, a, a theatre award for Home, one of Paul, Paul Mercer's plays, the year before, and I kind of said to myself, like, what am I waiting for here exactly? And the third thing was that I had written a play and put it on, and I'd performed in a play uh, or two that year. I'd put a concert on in school, and I had to leave and start class. Uh, and I kind of said, something's got to go here. So I kind of felt my time of teaching was just going to make a break, and then Mary um, said we had four kids, and Mary said, "Look, you know, I'll go back to work if necessary, or whatever. We'll let's just go at it." So a lot of it was down to her, because um, families have an extraordinary way of kind of making those decisions for you, uh, and and that's it. So took the leap.
1: Yeah. Good for Mary. <laughs> I think a lot of people are very glad you took that leap, Brendan. So we thank you. We thank Mary for helping you take the leap. Cheers. Thanks very much for thank talking this evening. Thank you. Very much, thank you.
0: Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.